When he was a teenager, Yuri Corrigan was staying with his grandparents in Halifax, Nova Scotia. While there, he first encountered the book that would change his life. So my relationship with the Brothers Karamazov started when I was, I think I was 16. And I come from a family that's uh, uh, Russian dissidents. And so my grandfather found out that I hadn't read Dostoevsky and uh, he staged a minor intervention there. He, he insisted that I read it. And I was really lucky at the time because, you know, he'd lived this novel and my, my step-grandmother, his wife, she'd lived it too. And they were uh, following my progress through the novel. So I'd kind of wake up in the morning and, and I'd go downstairs and uh, my grandpa would be at the breakfast table and he would say, you know, Yura, I think that Ivan is Smirjakov's double. That's kind of how he'd start the day, you know? And I think, what? Is he really? And we go out walking in the evenings, you know, what, what have you figured out? What have you seen about this novel? So I guess now I was just very, very lucky in that sense that from the very beginning when I was reading it, I understood that there was, there was something very, there was something about this novel that you had to think a lot to get, but also that it deepened and opened up to you depending on the depth of your meditation about it. And I think that's a very special quality. So my name is Yuri Corrigan. I uh, am an associate professor of Russian and comparative literature at Boston University. The Brothers Karamazov also changed my life. I grew up in a little Mormon town in Utah, and my high school it wasn't great. But when I was 16, I was invited to come stay with my uncle for a semester in Madrid, Spain, and I enrolled in a really good private school for expats. On the first day of class, my English teacher gave me a copy of the Brothers Karamazov which is a really long book. And he told us we had one week to read the whole thing. I was a bit incredulous, but once I started reading, I was completely hooked by the humor, the brilliance, the wisdom of the novel. It opened my eyes to a larger, more complex, more fascinating world than the one that I had known. And it really kindled my lifelong love of books. So in a way, this podcast exists because of the Brothers Karamazov. The Brothers Karamazov was published in 1880 by the Russian author Fyodor Dostoevsky, and much of the novel is a response to cultural changes arising from modernizing forces coming in from Western Europe. Industrialized capitalism, with its factories and trains, began to disrupt agrarian lifeways and shift wealth and power. New ideas were growing in popularity too. The country's leading intellectuals, centered in St. Petersburg and Moscow, were strong advocates of the Enlightenment and believed it was their mission to yank their backward and superstitious country into the rational light of the modern age. The clash between traditional and modern ideas became extremely intense. It was a war of ideas that felt completely irresolvable. It is in the midst of his country's culture war that Dostoevsky writes the Brothers Karamazov. Dostoevsky had already had a very impressive career by this point. He'd already written several other masterpieces, including Crime and Punishment, Poor Folk, and Notes from the Underground. The Brothers Karamazov was the last book Dostoevsky ever wrote. He died less than four months after it was published. And in his final novel, although Dostoevsky does push back against an uncritical embrace of the Enlightenment and modernity, he was less interested in polemics and in definitively winning the culture war than in offering a way out of heated conflict. He wants his readers to recognize that neither tradition nor modernity can solve the core struggles of human existence. You know, this is a person who really wanted 
to solve the problems. He didn't want to just say, oh, look how bad everything is. He wanted to say, here's what we do. And I think it's it's partly that, it's partly that kind of that deep optimism, that sense of that we're all, we all have these problems in life. We're all unhappy. And I'll try to help you through that. And so, you know, you can, it's the kind of novel where you can bring your questions to it. Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode, I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book that changed the course of history. For this episode, I sat down with Professor Yuri Corrigan to discuss my favorite book, Fyodor Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov. Tell us about Fyodor Dostoevsky. How did he come to have the disposition and the ability to write these masterworks? I guess he got really lucky and really unlucky at the same time. So really unlucky for any normal person, but really lucky for a writer. So, you know, the kind of stuff that happened to him is like what all writers would dream of happening to them if they didn't actually have to live through all the terrible things associated with it, right? So he grew up in in Moscow. His mom died at an early age. He was sent away uh, to St. Petersburg. He was forced to join an engineering academy, which was not his choice, um, you know, by his father. And uh, he, his father died, and it released him to become a literary. He always wanted to do literature. Him and his older brother, they were both passionate about literature. His brother was a poet. He was a writer. And he started writing, and he became very successful very early. Uh, he, you know, got into this group of the, the, the cream of the cream of St. Petersburg society. It was the mid-1840s, the start of Dostoevsky's literary career. He became a member of the Petrushevsky Circle, a group made up of like-minded writers, teachers, students, army officers, and minor government officials. They were part of the social class known as the Russian intelligentsia. The intelligentsia were well-educated people who felt the responsibility to shape the politics and culture of their society. There was a wide range of political views among the members of the Petrushevsky Circle, but most opposed the current Russian government, which was a monarchy led by Tsar Nicholas I. They loathed Nicholas for many things, but chiefly because he opposed ending serfdom, which was an oppressive feudal system that forced peasants to live and work on their landlord's land. As you can imagine, such a system was full of abuse and suffering. The Petrushevsky Circle often met to discuss possible methods of reform for Russia, and they looked to Europe as their example. The rise of industrialization had transformed Europe's economy and brought feudalism to an end, and they sought the same thing. Not surprisingly, Tsar Nicholas wasn't a fan of these rabble-rousers, and in 1849, the government cracked down and arrested members of the Petrushevsky circle, including Dostoevsky. He's 28 when he's arrested, and uh, he's sentenced to death. Um, and he's actually you know, taken along with his other co-conspirators, he's taken to the firing squad. And he's up there on the square. He's about to die. He's counting the seconds of his life that he has left. And all of a sudden, the sentence is commuted, and he's sent off to Siberia. And he's five years in prison, five years in exile. And then he comes back after all of that to St. Petersburg. And he sees his old comrades. They're talking about, what, what do you do about the people? Because there's this vast, vast populace of you know illiterate, uneducated peasants and you know until 1861 is a, you know 
the majority of Russia is serfs. And so you have the intelligentsia thinking, what should we do about this? How can we rebuild? How can we do it according to, you know, reason? How can we do it according to, you know, the, 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 the cutting edge European ideas? The intelligentsia in St. Petersburg believed the answers to Russia's problems could be found in the enlightened salons of Paris and lecture halls of Konigsberg, that reason should reign supreme over all other forms of authority. They wanted to overthrow the Tsarist autocracy with a more rational, egalitarian society. They were utopians. And they have all these dreams of what they're going to do with Russia. And Dostoevsky, who's lived with you know, hardened convicts, and who's really been side by side with, quote unquote, the people for the past, you know, definitely five years while he was in prison and then another five years in exile. He's thinking like all these ideas that you have, these are very adolescent. These are very like, these are, these are just daydreams of students. You know, we like, like there. So, so he really has something to say when he comes back and he did before, but it's, but now that he's back, he just feels like, Everybody's talking and everybody's talking nonsense and I have to do something about it. And, and why did he think those ideas were naive? He was always a psychologist. You know, from the age of 17, he wrote in his diary that I want to understand the human being. The human being is a mystery. I want to understand what the human being is and I'll spend my whole life doing it. Something to that effect. And uh, one of the things that he, he saw before anybody started talking about it in Europe among the people who were studying the sciences of the mind was he understood about the concept of trauma. He understood that there are people who carry wounds and that those wounds determine their behavior without their knowing it. We make all kinds of decisions and we don't know that we're doing it for reasons that we have no clue about. And so there's this whole realm of soul for Dostoevsky, of the unconscious that's beneath consciousness somewhere. And it's totally uncharted, totally unmapped, and, and everybody's pretending like it doesn't exist. Dostoevsky was relatively alone in this way of thinking. Most of the cultural leaders of the time believed that people could force themselves to be rational, to do away with that unconscious, trauma-informed part of themselves. For example, the social critic and philosopher Nikolai Chernyshevsky was a strong believer in revolution. He would often use the phrase, the worse the better meaning that the worse things got for the poor, the more that they would want to start a revolution. He published the novel, What is to be Done, in 1863. Years later, his book was picked up by Vladimir Lenin, and it became his guide for how to design the Russian Revolution. And one of the things that Chernyshevsky holds to is that, uh, you know, is that there's going to be a new kind of person, that there, like people were a certain way, and now people are changing. People are becoming more rational. People are becoming, it's possible to think of a person who gets rid of all that, like, you know, that sort of emotional, you know, all that stuff below the waterline and just become pure will. And those are the people we need to build the new world. Most people in the intelligentsia agreed with this idea that becoming more rational was the way to move forward. And Chernyshevsky wasn't writing in a vacuum. There were other forces at work that made pure will attractive to the intelligentsia as a way to reform culture. You know, Russia came to the Enlightenment late. Russia became modern only really in the 18th century or in the early, very turn of the 18th century with Peter the Great. And so they're kind of like, you know, rushing to show how up to date they are with the latest. And so materialism, uh, atheism, egoism, 
positivism. And positivism is very important as a, as a kind of a cultural phenomenon, the idea that nothing exists outside of what can be verified by science. You know, in this kind of worldview of, of rational uh, scientism, this is, this is very big. And Dostoevsky just thinks that's all just, in some ways, it, that is just the shallowest worldview you could possibly imagine. He's just, he already understood that that's just the tip of the iceberg. And all the reasons that we actually act, it doesn't take into account. This is what set Dostoevsky apart from his peers. Most Russian intellectuals were pushing toward modernity, but Dostoevsky was pushing against it. Dostoevsky really came to, um, he came to uh, uh, maturity as a writer, as a critic of modernity. That what modernity is for Dostoevsky is the sense that we're completely cut off from any traditional roots, that we are isolated or fragmented and fragmented in the sense that we're cut off, not just from others, but we're cut off from ourselves. We're cut off from what's deepest within ourselves. We're under the illusion that we are these kind of walking minds that make all of our decisions for ourselves. And we have no sense of the wholeness of what, uh, you know, of what more traditional cultures uh, had. We just kind of laugh at all of that. And so what he's trying to do is kind of raise the alarm, like ring the alarm bells, like modernity is, is a sickness. We're all suffering from it. We're all unhappy. We're all um, fragmented. And there are ways to think about trying to put us back together again. And I think that's kind of his mission as a novelist. And it's very hard to pursue that mission when everybody around you won't even admit that there is anything below the waterline. So that's kind of Dostoevsky working uphill, doing his uphill battle in the early 1860s. And in this battle, novels were his weapons. He was extremely prolific, and he was also, you know, very interested in the business side of uh, the literary world. So he was working on a journal with his brother, and he was always kind of engaged in that part. But, but the, you know, the 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 big part of his career was Notes from Underground, then Crime and Punishment, massive success. It's around that time that he gets married to his second wife, uh, which is also a major event for him, kind of like family happiness, and and which really, you know, he had a lot of very destructive tendencies. And I think she helped anchor him. Um, and then you have, after that, the idiot. You have uh, the devils or the possessed or the demons, however you want to translate it. And then you have the adolescent and then finally the brothers Karamazov. And Dostoevsky dies at 59 and as an epileptic chain smoker with emphysema and just, you know, with all the crazy anxiety that he experienced, it's just amazing. It's a miracle that he lasted that long, that he made it that long so that he was able to write this novel. You know, I always think this novel shouldn't exist. He should have been dead many, many times before he got there. So that's kind of, in some ways, the crowning achievement of his work. And he would have been, it would have already been an unparalleled career without it. Dostoevsky worked fast. This was mostly out of necessity. Because he was constantly broke and had a weakness for gambling, he had to publish quickly to get money. And so you get the, you know, you get a sense that with Dostoevsky, all of his novels are drafts. He's working out ideas. He's working quickly. He wrote at night and he wrote, you know, his, his, his pen was moving quickly over the page. Um, and, uh, you know, and so he brings all of those drafts to the brothers Karamazov. And one of the things that he brings is this project of trying to write a perfectly good person. And that becomes this image of Alyosha, which blends together with the kind of grief and love that he had for his dead son. You know, when you look at his, you look at his life, there was just all these tiny moments that contributed to it. You know, for a long time, for the last decade of his life and, and more, he was planning on writing this big, big book. 
you know, I think it three volumes long, which the Brothers Karamazov was going to just be the first, uh, the kind of prequel to this big work. And at first he thought of it as the life of a great sinner. That was the title that he was working with. What is, what is it about? What's the, the general sweep? I think that at its core, it's about a family and it's about a very dysfunctional family. And, uh, you know, Dostoevsky, he, uh, he chose a father who was probably the worst father you could possibly imagine. And for some reason, you feel a great fondness for this character. And Dostoevsky called this character Fyodor. And that's important. He gave him his own name. Um, and so you have this father who raises this wildly dysfunctional family. With his first wife, he has his oldest son, Dimitri, who hates his father. And then he has, with his second wife, he has two sons, uh, Ivan and Alyosha. And then there's probably a fourth brother, although Dostoevsky leaves it unresolved in the novel, whether he is, in fact, Fyodor's son. And that's, um, there's a kind of, uh, I guess he, I, um, I, I, it's a little bit unclear in the text, but it looks like he, uh, there's this woman in the village and he, uh, and she's kind of like this holy fool who is, you know, a little bit, you know, maybe mentally disabled and, and he apparently has a, fa- a child with her and that child's name is Pavel, uh, who's usually called Smirjakov and he's kind of this humiliated um, bastard son. And so that's the family and the mothers are dead and you kind of have, well, I guess what happens is that the father is killed and, um, and it becomes a murder mystery. And one beautiful thing about Dostoevsky is, although he was writing about you know philosophy and he you know, he just knew the whole tradition, he liked trashy literature and he wasn't against using trashy uh, devices to keep readers reading. And so he loved detective stuff, you know. And so a lot of it is you don't know who killed the father, and that's awesome. It's a detective story. Um, and then you have this whole courtroom drama, which is also very ahead of its time in terms of, you know, this, you know, the older brother, Dimitri, who kept saying, I'm going to kill this guy. I hate this guy. I hate this guy. You know, it's like, he's just so clearly guilty question mark. And then he's accused of the, of the, uh, the murder. And then you see the whole courtroom drama unfold. Um, and then there's also love stories. You know, there's three separate love stories, one for each of the three main brothers. Um, and uh, those are kind of the bones of it. What you see for each brother is each one undergoes a kind of an intense personal crisis. And that's kind of the core of the novel is your relationship with these three brothers. Um, and they're kind of each trying to come out on the other side of this crisis. It's kind of all brought together by the fact that it's also a novel of ideas. It's a philosophical novel. And in some ways, maybe it's the philosophical novel, the paradigm or the template for what a philosophical novel could be. When did he get the idea for something this ambitious and you know, what do you think he was trying to do in it? One of the things that makes this such a heart-wrenching read is that it's a novel about grief. And uh, his son died in May of 1878, just as he was beginning the novel. And his son was uh, Alyosha Alexei Fyodorovich uh, Dostoevsky, right? So the they always have, people hate when they read Russian novels because everybody has so many names. But it's important that the title character, you know, the the hero of his novel is also Alexei Fyodorovich, son of Fyodor. And he gave the the name to, of his, of the son who had died. Um, So he had a son who lived until three years old, almost three years old, and then died. Um, And Dostoevsky had, you know, two other surviving children, but it just, this one he took really, really hard. This was his kind of his favorite, you know, the little boy who was always, he was the one boy that was allowed into his study when his dad was working. And, you know, he, he took it really hard. And I think that partly he was 
you know, some of the questions that he brings to the novel about why do children suffer? Why do terrible tragedies happen? This is not just some kind of intellectual preoccupation. You know, is there a God? Why did my son die? What is God? You know, these are questions that were burning questions for me, really wanted to know the answer. And so the novel is born of that kind of grief. This book is both a philosophical work and a novel. Dostoevsky wanted to present his ideas about culture, the human soul, and God to those who didn't share his beliefs. You know, Dostoevsky wrote for a secular readership, and so he was always trying to figure out how to stop people from turning the pages when he got onto his beloved themes, which were the themes of, of immortality, God, the soul. And so he does it in this amazing way that just that feels like it's not an imposition. I think that Dostoevsky was a philosopher who had certain questions that couldn't be answered theoretically. And that's what makes him an amazing writer. They could only be answered through the examples of living characters living through these questions. And so, you know, you can be a philosopher and you can say, why do innocent children suffer and die? And, you know, then you can come up with an answer to that. But to Dostoevsky, that answer is probably worthless unless you start thinking about real children dying and you start looking at the people around them and how they deal with it and who's responsible for it. Then it becomes a kind of a, a deeper kind of philosophical reflection. In the novel, Dostoevsky uses each of Fyodor's sons to illustrate a different philosophical idea about society. Dostoevsky is such a complex writer that he writes against type. So you kind of have this sense at first that Dmitri is kind of the wild son, the one who kind of just, the, the kind of monster of the family. And then you have Ivan, who's this extreme intellectual and, you know, an atheist. And then you have Alyosha, who's the kind of the good-hearted son. And, and you know, when you look at the text, it, it, it doesn't hold up somehow. They, they are much more complex than that. Ivan is extremely sensitive. He possibly isn't even an atheist. Alyosha is actually, it says sometimes, I don't believe in God. And, you know, and then Mitya is the one, Dmitri, the eldest, who's supposed to be this monster, is actually longing in his soul always to be good. You know, he, he feels disgust with himself. And so I think what he carries, what they all carry, and this is, you know, for Dostoevsky, very important. How do you integrate your past? I think this is, you know, one of the questions that he's asking. What does it mean to be modern is that we live without memories. We live without roots. We live without traditions. We long for those traditions. And it's not just, oh, well, I'm going to find my tradition. I'm going to integrate myself. It's like, look at your dad. Do you really want to integrate yourself like that? Like if you want to find God, the father, you're going to have to go through your father and your father is a horrible person. And this is a person who never looked after you, never did anything to you. And so how are you going to do that work of integration? And so Dimitri, the eldest brother, what he represents is a soul that wants, as he says, to make a pact with the earth. He's a romantic. He says, but what do I do? Do I just rub myself against the earth? How do I do it? How do I make myself? And he's so disgusted with all his you know, it's like little impulses because they remind him of his dad. And he's got a lot of work to do, you know, because he's got to integrate all of that stuff. He says this karamasa force that flows inside of us. That's like our DNA. Oh, it's gross. That's the whole modern problem is that we're disgusted by the past. We look back, we just see injustice. What do we do with it? And for Dostoevsky, if you want to become an integrated person, if you want to find God, you have to go through that murky water and you have to find a way to, to, to find it in yourself. And that's Dimitri's big try. That's his, his, great, um, his great challenge. For Dostoevsky, Dimitri's challenge is also the big challenge for humanity, to take responsibility for and to integrate the past. This is what the rational-minded intelligentsia were ignoring. They wanted to move forward and build a new future without consulting the past. 
After Dmitri, the next oldest brother is Ivan. He represents the secular intellectual. And here you have the problem of the, uh, the character who is an idealist. That when, like, so here's his idea, that it's easy to love humanity, but it's impossible to love human beings. And the truth is, this is Dostoevsky's big insight, that if you love, the more you love humanity, the more you'll hate human beings, because human beings are loathsome, disgusting creatures, if you believe in how good humanity can be. The intelligentsia believed that they could perfect humanity by thinking and acting rationally. They only saw what humanity could be without fully taking into account how humans actually are. This is what Ivan represents. Not only does Ivan dislike humans, but he also thinks that God is not a solution to human problems. You have this, um, this character, this kind of the squeamishness of the modern intellectual who looks at the world and sees the world as a horrible place in a place that's governed badly. Because what you have is, you know, who's the God that allowed everybody to be horrible to each other? And that's his position against God is that, you know, children suffer. Like, they, like, and not just children suffer. Like, here are all these examples. I have this whole notebook full of all these instances of just the most disgusting, loathsome have things happening to little children. And so there's this sense of which, you know, in which the whole world is... It needs to be taken under control. And that's the move towards authoritarianism, from idealism to authoritarianism. The world is badly run by a God who doesn't look after little children. And so we're going to do it for him. We're going to take control. We have to fix God's mistake. God let people be free. We're not going to allow that to happen because it allows, because the consequences are too great. Dostoevsky contrasts Ivan's atheism with his younger brother, Alyosha. Alyosha is a member of the local Russian Orthodox monastery and adores his mentor, Father Zosima. In the novel, Alyosha undergoes a transformation that illustrates one of Dostoevsky's key philosophical ideas. With Alyosha, his ability is one in which he can look at people and, and kind of love them. And that for Dostoevsky is the hardest thing to do, you know, to, to actually love human beings and not humanity. And so what he calls it in the novel is act of love. And I think that, you know, what Alyosha stands for in his development is at first he kind of is like a, you know, he's kind of like this, a slightly immature, like he's a lovely person at the beginning, but he's immature in the sense that he just idolizes his elder. And it's not even clear if he has a God that he prays to. It's more like he prays to his elder and his elder kind of saves him from his own agony. It's hard to have your own mind. Um, and uh, his elder dies and he kind of goes through this dark night of the soul uh, to find that experience of you know something deeper and he's been haunted by this something deeper and he finds it after his elder dies and it makes him into a, a strong person Dostoevsky says a fighter for his life and so Dostoevsky is interested in that moment of crisis when your foundations are torn away and you're forced to kind of look inward and go through the gloom to encounter what he sees as the holy spirit that lies in the depth so through Alyosha he kind of shows the formation of, a, of what he saw as a religious consciousness, which was very an, an, a very unorthodox view of religious experience. Um, and I think what Alyosha represents, if he represents something in the novel, it's this idea of active love, is to be able to look a person up close and not be totally disgusted by that person. And in fact, be a conduit for that thing, you know, the, that force that flows from the depths. And, and that can also be a very painful thing too. Um, and so that's kind of Alyosha's role, is the, the loving brother. How did he resolve, and how have other readers resolved, though we may want to criticize uh, hubristic 
philosophies of progress, the opposite tendency to just say we're doomed to let children suffer also seems wrong. What's beautiful about his, you know, his approach to the novel, he's like, oh my God, how am I going to answer it? Because it's my responsibility to answer it. And so I think, you know, this idea that like children suffer and we, you can't get around it. You can't be like, well, in the end, it'll all turn out okay. I don't think he's interested in, or they go to heaven. Nothing like that is very helpful for Dostoevsky. I think that, you know, the idea is, and what did you do to stop it? You know, and not just, are you going to build a system in which it doesn't happen? But in some ways, you did it. And this is why, like, I did it. And this is, I think, it's, you know, there are many ways to explain this, but one way is that, what do you mean by I? Like, if you start to look into a human mind, you see, like, there's your own memories, and then there's, like, this reservoir this Dostoevsky believed that connects you to all human history and to all people. And so we have all of that history within us and we don't want to confront it. You know, there are rotting bodies in our collective history. There's injustice. There's all that stuff. And you have to claim it. But not only do you have to claim it, because that's a lot to claim. That can destroy your life. You have to claim the sources that lie beyond them. Because that's how, you, you know, if you can find that source which is, and he believed that was his thing, you know, that he said, he always talks about believing in God is not, uh, it's not a discursive thing. It's not like, do I believe, don't I believe? It has, that has absolutely nothing to do with faith. Faith is almost physiological. Faith is, if you do that digging, if you go through those waters, you will find a kind of source and then you will become a conduit for that source and you can bring it into the world. And that's almost more of an emotional, psychological process than it is an intellectual process. And most of us don't want to do it. And most of the progressive intellectuals of Dostoevsky's time, he saw it as philosophy, as symptomatology, right? They didn't want to accept that there was a soul because they didn't want to do all that work. They didn't want to carry all that endless history and they didn't want to carry the darkness and they didn't want to think about their own painful childhoods and their, you know, and so the idea is let's march bravely into the future. But what Dostoevsky saw was let's retreat from the past into the future and make the future even worse because we haven't really dealt with what we're running away from. And so I think this idea that, you know, what does it mean to claim guilt and claim responsibility for everything that's ever happened? It's a kind of crucifixion. It's a kind of, in that moment, you become the world. And I think that's what he wanted us to do. He wanted us to be vast in that way. The difference between claiming and avoiding responsibility is illustrated through Alyosha and Ivan. Alyosha is someone who contains the whole within himself. He has waded through the muddy waters of existence, integrated the past and present, and arrived at a love for both humanity and the actual human beings we live with. Ivan, however, resists responsibility for the past. He wants to wash his hands of the fallen state of the world. He can only love humanity in the abstract, not the flawed flesh and blood before him. Dostoevsky was aware of how past experiences wound us and shape us. But to heal and move forward, he believes we have to understand and integrate those wounds, both on an individual level and as a society. But this integration, this claiming of responsibility, isn't easy. It's so much easier to blame others. You know, they did it. We're going to punish them. We're going to take them on. We're going to create a world in which they're going to pay for their sins. 
I did it. Where do I, what do I do with that? You know, I look around me in my, in my life and I think, he says, you know, the, the elder says, be careful what kind of face you're making because a child could be walking by and they could see that ugly expression that you're making in this moment, you know, like you're looking at something and you're just like, ah, and the kid sees it and it enters into that kid's heart and it changes, you know, you just never know the way that, you know, every action pours out into the world. And so do you take responsibility? Do you take guilt on for everything that's happened. That's, I think, Dostoevsky, that was the way that he tried to think through. And the problem is, is that Ivan's critique of the world is a justified critique, but it's only part of the argument. I think that's the point. And that's why I think when he wrote the novel, he didn't want to destroy his enemies. He wanted to bring his enemies into the fold. He wanted this to be the novel that healed the culture war that was tearing this, this country apart. And I think that he saw it was only through this radical doctrine of guilt radical or responsibility that you can do that. Part of Dostoevsky's great power as a novelist was his psychological insight, his perception of how our past and our subconscious motivate our actions. His work deeply influenced the field of psychology, including the pioneering Austrian psychologist Sigmund Freud. Well, the beautiful thing about Freud is, you know, he was a doctor and he was self-conscious about seeming like a doctor, but he drew directly from, you know, Plato, Nietzsche, Dostoevsky. These were the architects of modern psychology and, you know, Schiller. There are a few others, but I think Dostoevsky was a, a very important, um, I think he's usually treated as a kind of stepping stone on the way to psychoanalysis, but he actually represents a psychology unto himself. And it's, uh, you know, what, what Freud did was he, uh, he bounded the psyche. He took the romantic psyche and he bounded it at the bottom. So it was closed at the bottom, you know, the energies that try to surge up inside of you. They're your own. And you just have to figure out how to mediate them. And for Dostoevsky, they come from somewhere else. And it could actually be the voice of the Holy Spirit howling out inside of you. And that's a different kind of psychology, but one that certainly contributed to modern day psychoanalysis. The other thing that Dostoevsky contributed is that he understood that there was a wound and that that wound was something that had to be revisited. And that there are, there are bodies that are rotting in our unconscious. And that if we leave them there, we will become fragmented beings that create a nightmare in the world around us. And all of this is, you know, is almost like a direct path from there to, to uh, 20th century psychoanalysis. How did his work make its way through culture? How did it influence other movements? How does the world look differently because of this work? So we can start with existentialism, right? We could start with the existentialists. So, you know, what Sartre loved about Dostoevsky and took from Dostoevsky was that Dostoevsky was interested in the abandonment by God of modern people. And so he said that was the starting point of existentialism. But I think there's a lot more that Dostoevsky contributed to existentialism than that. This theory of radical responsibility is some ways essential to the um, existentialist, the idea that I am responsible for everything. I think it's the, it's the direct opposite when you read it in Sartre from what um, Dostoevsky intended. But I think that just reading Dostoevsky uh, uh, you know, was one of the things that gave birth to some of these ideas. Another way this novel has had a strong influence on existentialism comes from a passage in the story when Ivan asserts that if there is no God, then everything is permitted. Huge moment for world philosophy right there. You know, the idea that, okay, well, what do I do if there are no larger moral horizons? What do I do if there is nothing to build my existence on? 
if there is no root of me, then I have to become my own root. And Dostoevsky sees that as a disease. He sees that as a modern pathology that people are trying to drink their own blood to nourish themselves. They're trying to become gods over others. They're going to make themselves tyrants over others. The brothers Karamazov and Dostoevsky's other novels also dramatically influenced the writers who followed him. The footprint of his influence on the 20th century is, you know, you read Faulkner, it's there on every page. Virginia Woolf was fascinated by Dostoevsky and particularly by his, by the soul that she saw, you know, just like this, she calls it like this, this thick liquid, this icky liquid that like flows through all the characters. Um, you know, you have Proust, what we wrote about Dostoevsky was deeply influenced by Dostoevsky. You have, um, you know, the, the uh, I mean, the, the list would go on and on and on. And I think that the idea is just the novel, you know, David Foster Wallace based Infinite Jest on Brothers Karamazov, you know, goes all the way up to the, to now. Um, the, uh, the idea of a novel of vast ambition, the idea of a novel that can really try to answer the, you know, the most, you know, the, the most unanswerable questions, the kinds of questions that philosophy ultimately can't really get at. You can get, you know, you can ask the question of innocent suffering, as a, like I said before, but if you actually have a child dying in the novel and you feel that this is not just a device on the part of the author, but that he's lived through this as well. Now, I wanted to come back to something you mentioned before, which is that, like our own day, Dostoevsky was extremely concerned about a culture war, a war between. I guess, traditionalists and progressives. And what I've heard you say is that, you know, he, he told the progressives, you're, by, you're trying to, you know, save humanity by changing human nature or believing that human nature can be changed. Um, and you are living in a naive fantasy where the world and human beings can be perfected. Um, I, I, <laughs> I smite you and exhort you to stop abstractly loving humanity and try to love actual human beings. And that his overall <laughs> remedy for the culture war was for everyone to take equal responsibility for suffering. It tends to be especially meaningful to religious skeptics or atheists or agnostics who read this and for the very first time get a glimpse of the power of religious life and thought and begin to wonder if, you know, the Enlightenment is not in fact <laughs> the very best way to orient one's thinking in the world. I totally agree with you that I, I love it in class. I teach a course on the Brothers Karamazov and I always love it in class. And I pray, all, and I pray, I just, I just oh, I hope that the students in class are going to be the ones who are atheists, who are, you know, deeply committed to kind of rational thought and progress and all that kind of stuff, because these are the people that these novels were written for, you know, just, that was Dostoevsky's crowd and that was his readership. And, you know, I've had a couple students in my office say like, I didn't, I never knew that God wasn't this architect in the sky that like rules over the world. I didn't know that religious people weren't that stupid. 
you know, like now I'm understanding that there's like this power in things and maybe it's not like intellectual cowardice is not, or maybe is not to be like, oh, I need the consolations of God because God is not consolation. Maybe the cowardice is like, I don't want to deal with having a soul. So I say that I don't have one. And that's just like, you know, then it's, you start seeing like how Dostoevsky is not just about, oh, you know, stop thinking, enjoy your life, become part of the fold. That's not, it's a very, it's a, it's a much more challenging, ambitious program. And you asked another really important question there, I think, is that, you know, it sounds like Dostoevsky is just berating the progressives of his time. But, you know, I think that his message is the same for both sides of the culture war. What's, what's so fascinating in the second part of the Brothers Karamazov is that Dmitri, I, won't, I should, probably shouldn't spoil the novel, but everybody, okay, let's do it this way. Everybody during the trial is 100% sure of whether he's guilty or not. And whether they believe in it or not is completely dictated by their personal politics. There's a culture war, there are two sides to the culture war, and everybody believes based only on what their political outlook is. And it's scary because it means that our whole concept of truth without us knowing it is dictated by our hatred for a certain kind of people. And the more I notice, like, you know, just kind of like living in our current moment in the United States, I notice that people are less for their cause as they are against the other cause. And so politics is often a kind of rejection of somebody else, a kind of hatred of somebody else, a demonization of somebody else. And I think what Dostoevsky as a psychologist, as a philosopher, as a writer, what he's asking us to do is to be vast, which is hard. You know, it's like, instead of just being one arm of a dialectic, of a political dialectic, become the whole of that dialectic. Really find out what the people you hate. Because you know, the person you hate is the most important person in your life because that's the part of yourself that you have tried to excise and put onto that person. And it means it's howling out from within you and it wants to be integrated. And then you feel the pleasure of hatred. Beware the pleasure of hatred because the pleasure of hatred is the hatred for that part of yourself that you do not want to admit you have. And so the novel's asking us, and this is what each character goes through. Each character goes through this kind of, this discovery of an inward vastness, you know, that includes the father that they hate. That has to be part of you as well. And so I think, you know, it's one thing to say it, and it's another thing to write a genius novel that brings us directly into that problem and asks us to become vast and kind of breaks us open from within. And so, you know, Dostoevsky was powerless to stop what was happening in the world around him, but he generated the antibodies. That's what literature is, you know, for what was happening to that. It's not just, it's not just the left was tearing the culture apart. The culture was actively tearing itself apart. You have the, you know, you had a, you know, the, the whole legacy of serfdom. These were problems that they couldn't deal with. You had a virus that couldn't be treated. It left its antibodies in this deep text that we can all read. And so here's our opportunity. You know, we read it, Maybe we won't tear each other apart in the same way. Maybe, like, maybe there's this principle that came from the 19th century, you know, this idea of vastness, of becoming broad, allowing space for your enemy inside of yourself. You know, maybe we'll get it from Dostoevsky. No healthy culture is completely static. We should constantly look for ways to improve ourselves and our way of life. And there will always be tension of old versus new. That's a good thing. That tension can keep us anchored while allowing new ideas to revitalize us. But Dostoevsky knew that meaningful change, real progress, is much harder than political slogans or new legislation. Because that kind of change happens not in the bright light of the rational public sphere, 
but in the dark, complicated terrain of the human heart. Writ Large is produced by Jack Pombriant, Liza French, and me, Zachary Davis. Script editing is by Galen Beebe. We get help from Farron Dew. Our theme song is by Ian Koss, and our branding is by Dan Petchy. We're a member of LitHub Radio. Writ Large is a Lyceum original production. You can find us on our website, writlarge.fm. There you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thank you for listening. See you next time.